0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is the best way to keep on top of all the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day through our excellent newsletter, handcrafted with love by Jeremy Goldhorn and his craft team, through our smartphone app, or at the website at supchina.com. We feature uncensored original reporting and commentary from and about China, covering topics from the Belt and Road Initiative to the South China Sea, from U.S.-China competition in technology to the plight of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and much, much more. We are sure you'll agree it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in Durham, North Carolina. This week and next, we have a special treat for you, a two-part interview with Shelley Rigger, perhaps the best known scholar in the US focusing on the history and politics of modern Taiwan. She is Brown Professor of Political Science and Assistant Dean for Educational Policy at Davidson College, in my own home state of North Carolina, where she's been since nineteen ninety three. This interview originally ran on one of my absolute favorite China podcasts. The University of Pennsylvania's Center for the Study of Contemporary China podcast with Nasan Machbubi. Nasan, who you'll be hearing on Seneca in just a couple of weeks, is a fellow in Chinese law at the Center, and he teaches law at UPenn's Law School. And as you will see, he is a wonderful and deeply learned interviewer. And with his blessing and with Shelley's, we are running this interview, which really covers in just tremendous depth the whole story of Taiwan up to the present. I learned an awful lot listening to it, and I am sure that you will too. So thanks a ton to Nason and to Shelley. Um, make sure to subscribe to the UPenn Center's podcast, and please enjoy the first of this two-part interview.
1: Welcome back to the podcast of the University of Pennsylvania's Center for the Study of Contemporary China. I'm your host, Naysan Mahbubi, and in today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Professor Shelley Rigger of the Political Science Department at Davidson College and a preeminent scholar of the astonishingly complex and dynamic island of Taiwan. In planning our conversation around Professor Rigger's visit to deliver the keynote lecture for the annual Penn Symposium on Contemporary China last March, we settled on the topic of Taiwan and the Global Order in order to highlight how much Taiwan's history illustrates the many shifts in global ordering over the past hundred or so years, and its current status reflects those new uncertainties that confront our world today. Setting the groundwork for these points took us, in our discussion, through a fairly comprehensive review of Taiwan's dramatic modern experience. All the way from Japanese colonial rule prior to World War II, to the arrival of China's nationalist or KMT government after the communist revolution of 1949, through to the impressive democratization which is the defining element of Taiwan's past 30 years. However familiar you may be with the broad outlines of this story, I'm sure you'll find much to enjoy here in Professor Rigger's deeply insightful account of Taiwan's development so far and her thoughtful analysis of where it may be headed next. For me personally, having benefited immensely from her classic and highly readable book, Why Taiwan Matters Small Island Global Powerhouse, first published in 2011, our conversation was a real treat, exhaustive but super entertaining, as I think you'll agree, and invaluable for understanding the driving factors behind Taiwan's outsized presence in our news headlines, especially over the past couple years of the Trump administration. As this episode goes live, in early 2019, Taiwan has recently gone through a midterm election, so to speak, with results that surprised many observers. The election was mostly for local officials at the municipal and county levels, but some big national questions put forward under Taiwan's quite liberal referendum law were on the ballot, too. In the local races, President Tsai Ing-wen's ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, suffered major losses and the implications from voting on the 10 national referenda, including one that touched lightly on the question of Taiwanese independence, do not appear favorable to the DPP either. Still, it remains to be seen whether these results foretell a return to KMT rule at the national level, with Taiwan's presidential and legislative elections to be held in just over a year's time. What is clear to most observers, however, is that Taiwan's raucous democratic experiment continues to be strikingly robust, even as it grapples with many of the same challenges right now plaguing more mature democracies the world over, and as it proceeds against the backdrop of China's ever-deepening shadow. Chinese President Xi Jinping's January 2nd speech on his government's Taiwan policy may or may not have been as newly aggressive as some reporting has suggested. But at least it is clear that China's interest in reunification has not diminished over time, while Taiwan has pressed ahead with constructing a new identity for itself. For much more on how Taiwan got to this improbable point, and what may lie in its sure-to-be-contested future, here now is my conversation with Professor Shelley Rigger. Professor Shelley Rigger, welcome to the University of Pennsylvania and to this podcast. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So you are here to deliver the keynote address tomorrow morning at the Penn Symposium on Contemporary China on the topic of sustaining Taiwan through the 21st century. And you also led an informal roundtable discussion earlier today at the Center for the Study of Contemporary China, On the topic of Taiwan's politics at the midpoint of Tsai Ing-wen's first term. So at the risk of completely overburdening you uh, during this visit, uh, we also thought we might take the opportunity to record this podcast with you on a topic that draws on both of your presentations here, namely that of Taiwan and the global order.
2: So I think that's probably a good idea, because being in podcasts is one of the ways that I can sustain myself through the 21st century as a modern person.
1: (laughs) Well, I can't think of a better guide for uh, the conversation we're about to have on Taiwan uh, than you. Uh, You're uh, one of the country's preeminent authorities on Taiwan, and you're the author of my personal uh, favorite book uh, as an introduction to Taiwan, titled uh, Why Taiwan Matters, Small Island Global Powerhouse. I read it before I went to Taiwan for the first time and learned a ton from it and then found that when I got to Taiwan, it was on sale at every bookstore that I visited, and I cannot recommend it uh, more highly to our listeners.
2: Well, thank you very much for that recommendation, and uh, you probably won't find it, listeners, in bookstores in the U.S., unfortunately, it always surprises me to see it in a bookstore because you know the kind of books that academics write rarely uh, make it onto the shelves of actual bricks-and-mortar bookstores. But you can definitely get it online from the publisher, Roman and Littlefield, or wherever books are sold.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and I again, I strongly recommend it. It's it's a uh very, very uh, insightful and compact uh, introduction to all the main features of Taiwanese uh, history, uh, especially over the past uh, 50-some years, uh, which we'll be getting into some of that uh, history in this discussion. Uh, We're having this discussion about Taiwan uh, at a time when uh, the island has been very much in the news uh, in terms of its relationship with China and with the United States, respectively. And I think... One might also argue that Taiwan can serve as a particularly interesting lens on global dynamics more generally right now, uh, as driven by those two great powers, uh, China and the United States. Uh, Just to continue to underscore the relevance of this discussion, just today, as we're recording this, uh, Congress has uh, passed the Taiwan Travel Act. Uh, We're waiting to see whether the president will sign the act or simply let it pass into law. Uh, But in any case, it will become law shortly. And it's a law which, uh, consistent with prior attempts at symbolic legislation of this sort, uh, describes Taiwan as a beacon of democracy and says it should be U.S. policy to allow officials from all levels to travel to Taiwan and permit high-level Taiwanese officials to enter the U.S., a symbolic statement that is sure to attracted attention of uh, the Chinese government. And and uh, we're also recording this at the end of a somewhat tumultuous year in U.S.-China relations, uh, one in which Taiwan has uh, featured prominently from time to time under President Trump, uh, starting most famously with that congratulatory phone call from Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen to then-President-elect Trump in December of 2016. So there's definitely been a lot Of Taiwan-related news uh, over the past uh, twelve months or so.
2: That is certainly true, and it is not exactly new either. You know, one of the reasons that I wrote that book, Why Taiwan Matters, was to answer the question or or attempt to answer the question: Why is this little teeny country on the news so often? You know, it really is unusual for a country the size of Taiwan, and it's about the size, population-wise, of Ghana in West Africa, to be a focal point of international politics and of glo- the global economy. Yet Taiwan is both of those things. So it, it is a very interesting kind of puzzle to understand what is it about Taiwan that makes it so perpetually in our attention.
1: So to better understand this particular current moment where it's so much uh, in our, the top of our attention, let's go back a little bit in time. And um, ask you to help situate Taiwan uh, in its uh, early years and uh, to uh, help to explain how its status in the uh, global order shifted in the lead up to and then after the normalization of relations between the U.S. and China. And and how all of these developments shaped uh, this Taiwanese identity uh, that comes into focus over the course of the 20th century.
2: You know, to really understand Taiwan history, you have to go back a ways, but you can uh, get through the early part pretty quickly. So the original inhabitants of Taiwan are actually people whose origins are are very hard to uh, pin down. They are the predecessors and the ancestors of the all of the peoples of the South Pacific, but they themselves are not um traceable to the asian mainland in any kind of straightforward way. So for a few thousand years there had been people living in on the island of taiwan who had nothing to do with china. Then in the 1500s and accelerating in the 1600s people from mainland china began moving to taiwan in initially small, but then increasingly large numbers. And at first, they were kind of you know going in and out trading with the indigenous people and returning to the mainland. But over time, they began to settle there. So what you have in Taiwan is you have a kind of base layer of what we would call now Taiwan's indigenous or aboriginal peoples. And there are many different communities and and nations within that category. And then you have this very thick next layer of Chinese migrants coming from the mainland through the late Ming and then throughout the Qing dynasty, so until the late 19th century. And by the end of the 19th century, the population of ethnic Chinese people living in Taiwan was quite a bit larger than the indigenous population. And it was itself quite diverse in terms of where people had originated in the mainland, languages they spoke and different cultures, even within this um, community that might be thought of as having been Chinese in some way. Then in 1895, Uh, Taiwan was turned over by the Qing dynasty to the Empire of Japan. Uh, The Japanese and the Chinese or the Qing were fighting over territory in northeastern China and on the Korean peninsula. And in order basically to save the homeland, right, the Qing dynasty made concessions to Japan. And one of those was the island of Taiwan. So from 1895 to 1945, Taiwan was a Japanese colony, and it was a relatively assimilated or well-integrated Japanese colony. And the Japanese colonial government did a lot of economic development. They um, built roads and railroads and telegraphs. They proliferated educational opportunities throughout the population. So by the end of World War II, or or by the beginning of World War II, really, Taiwan was already a pretty well-developed place given its kind of location and um, history.
1: And I'll just underscore there that That was not necessarily the approach of Japanese colonialists in other countries in the region. And so my sense is that whereas in other countries in the region, there continues to be a great deal of grievance towards Japan for its actions during World War II, in Taiwan, my own personal perception has been that there's a lot of positive feeling towards Japan and towards Japanese culture because this period that you've just described was largely a beneficial one, as I understand it, for Taiwan.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's something that is very confusing and sometimes a little destabilizing for people from mainland China today who still view Japan as Having been the aggressor in World War II, which it certainly was, and having been, you know, a, largely a force, a, a destructive force in Chinese history, and certainly during the colonial era, there were many people in Taiwan who were highly critical of colonialism. There was a home rule movement in Taiwan, but the combination of the decision that was made at some point back in Tokyo that Taiwan would be a kind of model colony through which the Japanese empire would demonstrate its highly developed civilization to the Western world. So, you know, this was where they were going to show off how much they could accomplish in a realm which the West had kind of taken as its own area of strength, that is to say Imperialism. So, you know, that, so that, there were many uh, kind of positive consequences of Japanese colonialism for Taiwan as well as negative ones. But then you add to that what came in later and the sort of the combination, I think, is why Taiwanese today, by and large, have a relatively favorable view of Japan. And so if we can continue to what came later, right? So at the end of World War II, the Japanese almost evaporated back into Japan, you know, after 50 years of having significant presence on the island. And that itself is a, is a little tiny chunk of Taiwan's history that's quite interesting, is the, the, the dislocation that everyone felt when the Japanese almost overnight evacuated back to the home islands and and left Taiwan to await the arrival of their new government, which was the Republic of China government that had, was at that time uh, in charge in mainland China under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist or Kuomintang party. And the Republic of China was promised Taiwan in the conversations among the Allied leaders in the midst of the war Perhaps in part to kind of motivate the Republic of China armed forces to be more determined to you know, finish the war quickly, that they would get back their historical territories, including Taiwan. So in 1945, the Japanese clear out and the ROC or the nationalist government moved in. And for the next four years, so from 45 to 49, the nationalists are focused primarily on defending the mainland from the communist, I don't know, revolution, activity, you know, civil war. Everybody has a different way of describing what that was or characterizing what that was. But the nationalists are fighting hard to to save the heartland of China. And so Taiwan became a kind of troublesome backwater, a sideshow. But for the people of Taiwan, to be to realize that they had become this kind of sideshow, and that their island was supposed to be kind of a, a platform from which the nationalists could f- prosecute this other war and could achieve their real goal, um, that was kind of shocking and kind of unsettling for people in Taiwan, many of whom had imagined that the return of an ethnically Chinese government was consistent with the destiny of the Taiwanese people, who were after all, themselves ethnically Chinese for the most part. Mm -hmm. So the whole issue of, you know, are we Chinese? Are we not Chinese? What What are we here for? What is our purpose as a people, as a place? Begins to be destabilized and, in those four to be clear, years. And
1: clear, is this part, this is still before the communists take over China. So this identity is already being, is destabilized even in this period where the nationalist government is uh, in control in China and uh, there has yet to be this revo- the successful communist revolution.
2: Correct. And the the sort of climactic event for that took place in February of 1947 when the rising dissatisfaction and frustration of taiwanese people with the kind of administration they were getting which was a lot more like a military occupation than you know the restoration to the motherland that they had been kind of anticipating and this is understandable because until 2 years earlier right taiwanese men were in uniform fighting alongside the japanese they they fought as japanese because they understood themselves to be subjects of the japanese emperor so the fact that the that the nationalists came in with a kind of sentiment of suspicion is entirely understandable. It's one of those sort of tragedies of history, right? But anyway, the, the Taiwanese did not respond well to being treated like occupied territory. And in February of 1947, there was an uprising, to make a long story short, against the nationalists that was suppressed with a high degree of violence. And that violence continued in a in a more sort of uh, chronic rather than acute form for a couple of decades after that.
1: And that incident is uh, referred to commonly as the 228, 228 incident.
2: Right, cuz the the date was February 28th that right. um began it. So, you know, there there was a, a lot of bad blood already by the middle of the that sort of civil war interregnum um, from 45 to 49. Then in 49, the mainland falls to the communists and the nationalist government moves en masse to the last safe readout for the nationalists, which is Taiwan. And suddenly there are 2 million new people in Taiwan and they expect to take over and to be in charge. And they're
1: Two years after they've brutally suppressed this uprising rooted in Taiwanese identity. I feel like that point just doesn't get uh, the attention it deserves when people think about the nationalists moving to Taiwan in in 49. That was one of the major takeaways from reading your book for me was how dramatic that is, that only two years after this government brutally suppresses Taiwanese, uh, I don't know what you would call them, uh, activists, let's say, they moved to Taiwan looking for uh, security against this other enemy in mainland China.
2: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good way to put it. And, and not only refuge for themselves, but also the expectation that Taiwan will allow itself to be mobilized for the nationalists' mission, which is to recover the mainland from what they called communist bandits. So suddenly Taiwanese are expected to subjugate their own interests to the interests of the Chinese nation as it is imagined by the nationalists, which is a unified nation encompassing the, the Qing territories at the height of you know, Qing, the Qing Empire, all those under one flag speaking Mandarin, you know, practicing a very specific form of Chinese identity, which is um, a kind of elite Chinese culture, and that everybody in Taiwan was supposed to get in line and um, learn how to be that kind of a Chinese person and put themselves in the service of reversing the uh, communist
1: success. And and one other uh, point in that that... I've always, if I'm getting it right, I've always thought was incredibly dramatic is that the Taiwanese legislature under the Kuomintang in Taiwan, the districts were rooted in the districts of mainland China, which I just I still can't fully get my head around that I don't understand how that works logistically but if i'm getting that right that just it it, can, it always blows my mind
2: yeah so in 1947 the republic of china had legislative elections and so there were people elected in all of the provinces that we know and love today and several that are no longer extant, either because they're not part of China anymore or because they've been absorbed into others. But they had these elections. And when they moved from the mainland to Taiwan to seek refuge, they brought as many of those legislators with them as they could and enough to kind of repopulate the legislature in Taiwan. And those people, those individuals retained their seats from 1947 to 1991, because the logic went, we can't replace these guys until we can have an election back in their home district in Hubei or Xinjiang or wherever. So they have to just keep their seats. And needless to say, between 1947 and 1991, you have significant attrition of politicians in the legislature. So they would just go down the list of runners up and fill the seats with you know someone else that they could find. Um, so it really was a it really was a kind of very arrogant act that the the nationalist government did to assume that this sojourn on Taiwan would be very short and that the institutions of the ROC government could be preserved in Amber there for that short interval, and then simply reinstated on the mainland. That was their plan. And they did not allow that plan to be questioned or revised for many decades.
1: Is there essentially no representation of Taiwanese, not just districts, but Taiwanese people in the Taiwanese legislature from 1947 to 1991?
2: They had the same representation as all the other provinces of China. Hmm. So it's kind of like if if Maryland were the only state in the United States of America, but there were still senators from the other 49, um, you know, Maryland is still represented just maybe not very proportionally to its population under the jurisdiction of the legislature in question. They they also um, retained quotas in the bureaucracy. So, you know, X percent of... officials in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs need to be from Hubei or Shanxi or wherever so that Taiwanese were also prevented from uh, being represented proportionally in executive offices as well as in the legislature.
1: Right. Well, so that's terrific. We've got a very nice picture for what Taiwan looks like, uh, let's say, in 1949. So what is the, how does Taiwan develop during the Cold War years Uh, What is its role on the world stage uh, leading up to the normalization of relations between the U.S. and China in the 1970s? And then how does that shift afterwards?
2: So there was one more little moment of alternative possibility between 1949 and about 1951, which was when the U.S. was thinking that World War II was over and Chiang Kai-shek had lost it that is to say his country, um, and that nature would take its course in China. Then comes the Korean War and suddenly the U.S. says, wait a minute, you know, we can't let nature take its course because the course of nature is the the spreading of communism all over East Asia. It, they're already, you know, we've already fought a war in Korea. Japan is vulnerable, you know, so much of what happened in Japan at the end of World War II was about blocking the extension of communism into Japan. Taiwan is on the front line of that. So suddenly Taiwan became Hmm. a kind of uh, ally or almost protectorate of the United States. And so from 19 the early 1950s through to the early 1970s, the US position and the US was able to make this position pretty popular among all of the kind of democratic allies, you know, Europe, Japan, Oceania. Everybody kind of bought into the idea that the real Chinese government is the democratic one, the so-called democratic one. It wasn't really very democratic, but it had at least the aspiration and the history as working toward democracy. So the Republic of China on Taiwan, that's the real China. And these communists, eventually they're going to fall. And when they do, we'll have real China back. So Taiwan was able to, or I should say the, the ROC government under Chiang Kai-shek was able to sort of sustain that fiction for a surprisingly long time that Taiwan was going to make it and was going to represent China, even in the United Nations, even on the UN Security Council, right? China has a permanent seat in the UN Security Council. That seat was occupied by Taiwan until 19, the early 1970s. So that was kind of the way Taiwan was understood in global terms. And that became increasingly unsustainable starting in the developing world, you know, that sort of the non-aligned movement and then spreading even to uh, European countries in the 1960s and Japan. The recognition that the People's Republic of China was here to stay and it needed to be brought into the community of nations. The US was very late to that realization or to accepting that necessity, but eventually it did in the early 70s. But what that did for what that interregnum between 1951 and 1971 did for Taiwan was it created space for development. Hmm. It ensured that the PRC was not going to, you know, make the final push across the Taiwan Strait and finish the job of liberating China from the ROC, although that would have been very difficult for them militarily. But, you know, there, there really wasn't any possibility that that was going to happen with the U.S. with uh, Taiwan under the American umbrella, security umbrella, but it also created a, an opportunity for Taiwan to be developed economically using the same development approach that Japan had used and. You know, some, we used to talk about the uh, flying geese formation with Japan at the front and South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore sort of following behind, using that developmental state model to achieve a very rapid economic growth with real development and in addition, a highly, at least for Taiwan, egalitarian distribution of the fruits of development. So by the time the U.S. finally begins to realize we we need to find a way to recognize the PRC, Taiwan has become a highly developed, uh, export-oriented economy with a very prosperous and almost entirely middle-class society.
1: And we're going to get into uh, the story of political development in Taiwan uh, in, in a moment. But for the moment, I do want to underscore that even though the Taiwanese government had aspects that looked more democratic, certainly, than the uh, government in Beijing, my sense is it's fair to characterize the government in this period um, and also after the normalization of relations with the U.S. and China and, and the loss of the Taiwanese status on the world stage, to, to characterize that Taiwanese government as essentially Leninist. Not communist, obviously, but uh, not functionally democratic in a way that was that different from what the Chinese government was like in those periods where it was functional in mainland China at that time.
2: Yes, for people in Taiwan, the characterization of the ROC in those decades as free China was an incredible slap in the face, right? There was they were they did not experience themselves as being free or in China. Yet, you know, that was that was how Taiwan was understood and described certainly in the US and certainly by the nationalist regime itself. It was a single-party state. With the nationalist or Kuomintang KMT party as the ruling party. The legislative bodies were frozen in place, as we've already discussed, and aging. Aging fast.
1: <laughs> as you <Yes. laughs> emphasized earlier.
2: The media was completely owned and controlled either by state institutions or by party institutions. so there were three TV stations, one owned by the Taiwan provincial government, one by the military, and one by some other i can 't even remember now what it was, but all you know so so there was no freedom of speech there was no uh, real democracy at the level of national management however. One thing that makes all of this really tricky is that at the local level, there was democracy. So Taiwanese people right from the early 50s and even before the 50s, even in the 40s, were electing local leadership, representatives to uh, village, township, county, and provincial offices Um, in most cases, including the executive, as well as a representative body, so some kind of like city council. So what you had was this very interesting hybrid of a single party authoritarian state at the national level, with this bubbling cauldron of competition at the local level. All of that competition is happening within a single party. So if you want to be the township mayor, you better be a KMT member, but there are going to be two KMT members or more competing to be the township mayor. And that competition within the KMT really cultivated a spirit of democracy and cultivated a population of people who were ready to compete at higher and higher levels. So, you know, that there's it's a it's an it's a all it's an infinitely complicated story where what we think is this kind of top-down heavy lid that's real, but at the same time there's this other thing going on at the local level and the fact that competition was allowed and in fact encouraged and encouraged because it made the country a lot easier to govern that people were in some ways, selecting their leaders where it counted, you know, most of what we care about in life happens pretty close to where we live. So uh, the fact that people were selecting their own local leadership meant that they identified with it. They did not see the uh, government as wholly alien, because it had roots in their own communities, in their own clans, in their own families. And I can give you an anecdote from my first trip to Taiwan, which was in 1982, so a bit after this time. But I was living with a Taiwanese family on the east coast of Taiwan, and the dad in the family was very tight with the county executive, the county magistrate, who was, of course, a KMT guy. And he explained to me one time, he said, you know, no, we don't, we don't like, I don't like Chiang Kai-shek, you know, I don't like Chiang Jinghua, I don't, I don't like all of that at the national level. And I don't think it's, it's a democracy. And I don't, I'm not crazy about the KMT, but he's my friend, and i think it's easier to understand taiwan politics after 19 the 1970s if we allow ourselves to accept that the kmt was not entirely alien or entirely an outside regime but that it did penetrate the society and it did grow roots down into the the very basic levels of political
1: activity. As a scholar of Chinese politics, uh, listening to this story, knowing how it ends up, and we'll get to that in the processes of democratization in the late 80s and 90s, this story of uh, greater democratization at the local levels, even within the context of a Leninist state, you could see some parallels to that, especially in the 1980s in China. And going forward at the local level with the election of village leaders, um, some level of inner party democracy. Of course, the Chinese story goes off in a completely different direction, it seems, given the most recent developments. But one could imagine in the 1980s seeing things happening in China and thinking, oh, this is sort of like what happened in Taiwan in the period before democratization in Taiwan, so it's it's a little bittersweet to hear <laughs> to hear this, but that's taking us a little far afield. Uh, focusing still on Taiwan, you know, I take the point that there have been these disruptions in the 20th century that have shaped Taiwanese identity, and and some that you've emphasized. One is. The uh, when the Japanese leave and Taiwan comes back under Chinese rule, but Chinese rule doesn't feel the way that maybe Taiwanese expected it to, then the second being where the KMT comes to Taiwan when there are two million members. Um, I would imagine that losing its status on the international stage and becoming a sort of shadow state of uh, starting in the 1970s and onward would also have really affected the Taiwanese psyche. Losing the seat on the Security Council, losing its position on all the different international bodies, essentially being in a position where there were restrictions on travel, even by Taiwanese officials to different countries. Maybe you want to explain a little bit of what that overall picture looked like, but also speak to how that shaped uh, the Taiwanese identity towards the end of the 20th century before we get into the post-Cold War period.
2: Sure. I think it was a very two-sided experience, the The initial experience of discovering that the US was betraying the Republic of China, which is 100% how the overture by uh, Kissinger and Nixon to Mao and Zhou Enlai was understood on Taiwan, a betrayal by the US. The initial reaction was, this is this is an existential catastrophe. We can't possibly survive. Uh, that you know the the idea that Taiwan would be left alone to face the communists, and that the U.S. would have chosen the communists over. At that time, a military ally, because one of the things that Nixon and Kissinger had to do in order to move this process along was to abrogate a mutual defense treaty with the Republic of China. You know, that was really shocking. And I think many, many, many people in Taiwan believed it was the end. But in another way, it was so liberating because it released Taiwan from the necessity to pretend to be China. And it opened the door to reimagining Taiwan in a new way. So the obligation of the Taiwanese people and the, and you know even Taiwan as a physical, geographical space, to subjugate itself to the destiny of China is gone once the world says nope." You know, it's no longer the destiny That's of China point. to be yeah. taken over. So, you know, at first it was the worst thing that could ever have happened. But I think it it was the beginning of the end of the fantasy. And that fantasy of reunification under the ROC government was what was standing in the way of changing the political system to a democracy, because you couldn't replace all those representatives from all those provinces in mainland China as long as you were still holding out the plan and the expectation that they were going to get their jobs back in Beijing, or Mm. in Nanjing. Actually, that was the capital of the ROC. So as long as this fiction was sustainable, Taiwan was unable to move either toward a new identity or a new political system. So I think in the in the end, it was a very positive, but
1: there was one more... This is not so important, but I can't resist asking, was the experience an incremental one? Or was it like ripping a bandaid off? Did it just happen overnight? Or was it a series of steps that eventually kind of culminated in, oh, this is our new reality?
2: I think it happened very quickly, hmm. um, you know, because people could maybe have anticipated, and I'm sure there were people in at the highest levels of the RSC government. Actually, not perhaps not at the very highest level, but you know, some layer or two below John shek himself who knew that this was being discussed. But you have to remember the secrecy with which Nixon and Kissinger prepared this process. I think what should and probably did to a great extent tip them off was the loss of the United Nations seat. But even there, right, that happened a year before they lost U.S. recognition or the the process of losing U.S. recognition began. Uh, but even there, I think John Kai-shek was unable to make a realistic calculus of what was happening. Uh, the U.S. representative to the United Nations at the time was George H.W. Bush, hmm. and he explored the possibility of some kind of two-seat solution for China. But Chiang Kai-shek would have none of that. He said, I am the Chinese president. There's only one China, and it is the Republic of China. And I, I, we will walk out of the United Nations before we will accept representation alongside these communist bandits. Wow. So that's how Taiwan lost their seat in the UN, right? So they should have known that 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 wasn't going to be the last domino to come down, yeah. But people, nonetheless, uh, were very surprised when they learned that uh, Nixon was going to China and that there would be, you know, that a deal had been made to, in effect, de-recognize Taiwan within some very short period of time. And that is where another one of these historical curveballs comes winging in and changes the calculus in a a way that could not have been predicted. And that was the—so in 1972, Nixon and Mao put into motion the process of normalization of relations between the United States of America and the People's Republic of China. And then, almost immediately, Nixon's under fire, in danger of impeachment— Resigns the presidency, Mao is dying and dies. And so instead of the process kind of moving through the kind of normal diplomatic channels, everything gets stuttery and uh, backed up by these completely random events of the mid-1970s. Well, Taiwan does not miss this opportunity, Hmm. okay? So while the U.S. is is arguing about whether or not to impeach Richard Nixon and China is trying to figure out how to replace Mao Zedong, Taiwan is working behind the scenes to secure the support of the United States Congress and to find a way for the abandonment and betrayal not to be total. So the way I always think about this is it's kind of like in the... um, the fairy tale of sleeping beauty, where all of the fairies come in and they give the baby their gifts. And then the angry fairy comes in and she says, you know, here's my gift. You're going to prick your finger on a spindle and die. And then there's one more good fairy. And she comes in and says, I can't reverse this curse, but I can soften it. Right. Instead of pricking your finger and die, you'll fall asleep for a hundred years. That's pretty much what Congress did in this legislation that they passed in 1979 called the Taiwan Relations Act. They couldn't stop normalization. They couldn't stop the U.S. from de-recognizing the Republic of China. But they could soften the effects of that by creating legislation that requires the U.S. government to treat Taiwan for all sort of normal business as if it is a state. So we have an office. The United States has an office in Taiwan where we have people who are on leave from the State Department who perform the normal consular and diplomatic functions of an embassy. And we have consulate like offices in other cities in Taiwan. Uh, The U.S. also continued to sell military equipment and continues to this very year to sell military equipment to Taiwan. So in that brief little moment of confusion between 72 and 79, Taiwan managed to put into place the essential infrastructure for its
1: own survival. And by getting the U.S. Congress on its side, I wonder if, is that simply an accident of history, or if there's something about the dynamic of political power in the U.S. that would make the presidency be oriented towards China, and the Congress be oriented towards Taiwan? Is there, is there some systemic logic to that? Or is it simply as an accident of history, really, of these particular things that happened in the mid-70s with the impeachment of Richard Nixon, and, and so on, and maybe the Taiwanese uh, sophistication about, about the US Congress that presumably the PRC government in the 1970s did not have?
2: Yes, I think there is a little bit of systemic logic in the sense that the executive branch is responsible for national security and it has historically, um, in the current moment, we are still finding out whether this historical trend will prevail, but has historically been more kind of prudent and cautious with respect to China than the... Uh, Congress, the legislative branch in the U.S. has been. So Congress, you know, in, the, in 72, there were lots of Republicans in Congress who were furious at Nixon for going to China. Uh, you know, we always say Nixon's the only one who could have done it. Well, he only just barely got away with it. Hmm. And a lot of those kind of old cold warriors were still looking for a way to reverse that what they saw as betrayal, right? They talked about selling Taiwan down the river and, uh, you know, they, they didn't like it. And I think it is true that Congress can make these kinds of symbolic statements, even when uh, a, maybe a more realistic or pragmatic National security leader would say it would be great to be able to stand up for our values in this situation, but it's really very risky to do so. Uh, Members of Congress have historically across a range of issues said uh, pragmatism, pragmatism, you know, America stands for things. And, you know, you can see that you you began this conversation by mentioning the Taiwan Travel Act. It is exactly the same thing. You know, Congress continuing to say the U.S. should stand up for Taiwan. Taiwan shares our values. Taiwan has been a good friend to the U.S. for decades, has basically done everything American presidents have ever asked of it how can we continue to treat Taiwan as such a second class citizen in our diplomacy? And, you know, so right now, to this very day, we still hear the uh, legislative branch in the U.S. speaking about Taiwan in those terms. And will, you know, your question, will uh, Donald Trump sign that legislation? Will Donald Trump implement that legislation in a very sort of forward-leaning way, we'll see whether he follows the pattern of past presidents who have always said, well, thank you very much, Congress, for this uh, interesting guidance, but we're going to go on massaging our relations with China in a certain way so that you know we can protect our interests and equities there. So stay well, tuned.
1: Well, when By the time this podcast comes out, that question will still probably be an open <laughs> question for some time. You just said uh, something about sharing our values and uh, Going back to our earlier discussion, there is a significant period of time where politically Taiwan can't really be said to share our values, but that starts to change in the late 1980s under then-president uh, Jiang Jinguo, the son of uh, Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, and then when he dies in 1988, that process, which had already been set in motion, really accelerates. And under President Li hui Taiwan really transforms. as one of the There's a lot of countries in that post-Cold War period that go through processes of democratization, but Taiwan is probably at the very top in terms of the success and the depth of the process of transition. So just before we get into this current moment and the current challenges, maybe I could invite you to lead us through that as well, the, the process of democratization in the late 80s, early 90s.
2: Sure. Our values, I think, have changed from the Cold War to the post-Cold War. Uh, and, and that change is evident in the 1970s even, and certainly in the 1980s. Prior to 1970, you know, our value was anti-communism and, and capitalism, and Taiwan was both of those in abundance, But in the 1970s, the U.S. begins to be looking for something different in its diplomatic partners around the world. And that became especially evident under President Jimmy Carter. And, you know, uh, President Carter has his detractors and he he sits in a certain place in kind of popular views of American history. But I think there are many ways in which President Carter is is very much underestimated. But his contribution to human rights and to replacing a foreign policy or to calibrating a foreign policy that up till then had been entirely based on a kind of cold-blooded strategic logic of anti-communism. And no matter how bad your government was, we would call you free whatever. As long
1: as you're not communist.
2: Right. It was Jimmy Carter who who said, we need to stop doing that. And, and he was supported by many people in Congress as well. So what you see in the 1970s also is parallel to this process of trying to find a way for Taiwan to sort of survive, or for the relationship between Taiwan and the US to survive beyond the normalization with the PRC, which finally happened in 79. Parallel to that process, you have in in Congress a process that is pressuring the Taiwanese government to become more liberal and to um, relax restrictions on speech, to tolerate more dissidents and protest. And so in the 1970s, as people in Taiwan began to kind of respond to this changing international environment and actually raise the what had been an unspeakable question, why are we still under a single party authoritarian regime if we're not going to go back to the mainland. As people in Taiwan became more assertive about posing that question, they got a certain amount of protection from people outside Taiwan, especially in the US Congress, who would raise human rights violations as a reason to put pressure on the uh, Taiwanese government, so there's there's a kind of you know it wasn't it wasn't like one day they just turned the switch and Taiwan was democratic. people had to fight for it. Uh, a handful of people had to die for it, but it's a small handful compared to almost any other country. Sometimes, you know, when my uh, Taiwanese political activist friends are talking about how how hard it was and how bad it was and how evil Jiang Jinghua in particular was, I have to remind them, you know, I can list I can list pretty much everybody who was martyred to the cause of Taiwan's democratization. And I fully understand that one martyr is too many. But if we look at South Korea and the hundreds of people who died to push for what is also considered to be a relatively successful and, and relatively easy hmm. democratization, you know, Taiwan really did uh, pull this off with an astonishing and impressive degree of kind of smoothness and peacefulness. But it wasn't perfectly smooth or perfectly peaceful. Uh, And the 1970s were a period of uh, where it wasn't clear how it was going to go. And there was the opportunity during the 1970s for the ROC government to decide, you know, we will not... Let this country change. We will burn it down. And we are this very day watching countries burn because their leaders refuse to let go of power. I think we have to give some credit, especially to Zhang Jinghua, for deciding. So Zhang jingguo Chiang Kai-shek's son, who took uh, over as president after his father's death, we have to give some credit to Zhang jingguo for deciding to let it go. And to relax restrictions on freedom of speech and activism, publishing, political organizations. In 1986, a group of people decided, even though it's against the law to form a political party, we're just going to do it and we're going to see what happens. And Jiang Jingguo did nothing. Hmm. That was in September of 1986. And then in the summer of 87...
1: They tried doing that in China, too. Yes, that's right. Didn't Didn't work work out out. the same way.
2: And, and so a year after that, uh, Zhang Jinghua told Catherine Graham, the star, you know, Meryl Streep <laughs> plays her in the post. He told Catherine Graham, I'm going to lift no martial law pretty soon. Hmm. And so, you know, he just made the decision. He made the choice to allow Taiwan to go forward in a democratic direction rather than trying to suppress this energy for change by force. So after 1987, it was kind of like a snowball rolling down a hill. There was no stopping it. And the KMT, the, the Nationalist Party, tried to direct the snowball in various ways, but it was picking up steam. Jiang uh, Jingguo died in 1988, and his successor was Li Denghui. And Li Denghui was very important because his ancestors were from the group of Taiwanese who had ethnic Chinese in Taiwan who had been there since before the Japanese colonial era. Mm. So he was not one of the two million recent arrivals. He was a, he was from a what we would call a real native Taiwanese family. And he basically looked at the KMT, his own political party, which he had just inherited from his boss. And he, I think, realized his position was very weak among the, the two millionaires, hmm. but it could be very strong if he turned to the majority, who the 85% who were like him, of Taiwan. And so he then really accelerated the democratization process in order, in part, to embed himself as kind of the father of democracy and protect himself from the more conservative elements in his own political party.
1: It's not the worst incentive for supporting democratization. I mean, mm-hmm. if it helps him too, it's yeah, yeah. Helps to and so later, focus his attention on it.
2: Right. Later, he became you know uh, associated with other political ideas that were much more controversial. But I really do believe that in you know between eighty eight and ninety six, when he was elected for the first time in a direct presidential election, a true democratic presidential election, the first time Taiwan had one, uh, that that his real goal was to lift Taiwan out of the trap it had been in, of being dependent on this kind of fantasy or fiction of unification under the ROC and allow it to emerge not fully independent because, you know, the PRC was not going to allow that, and also the KMT would not have allowed uh, Li Donghui to do that, but to emerge as something that was fully realized in itself.